Hey, welcome to week two. Yeah, you made it. You survived. <laughs> I, uh, I went back and uh, if you, hey, <clears throat> how many of y'all, is this your, your, you missed last week and this your first week? Okay, handful of you. Great. Welcome. My name's Nathan. I serve on the equipping team here and get to, get to uh, teach classes like this. So I'm excited to be with you guys again tonight. We'll actually be with you guys every night except for the last week in April, I'll be in Haiti, and one of the other guys that's on staff is going to fill in for me that night. Uh, it's it's going to be really good. So his name's Derek. I'll talk about him more as that gets closer. I went back and listened to last week's, <clears throat> and uh, again, want to apologize for the uh, amount of information that was <laughs> thrown at you guys. As I was listening to it, I was like, okay, I really needed like a map <laughs> or something so you could kind of track with what I was doing. A lot of times it gets familiar in my own mind, and then some of it gets lost in translation because it's familiar to me, and as I am telling it to you, um, sometimes it's, if you're not familiar with like the geography and where all these places were and who these people are, and <clears throat> it can be confusing. So if you, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go listen to it, even though I just told you it was confusing. And, uh, and, and then also, if it was confusing, I would encourage you to, uh, like I said, kind of the tossing plaster to wall, some of it sticks, um, or yeah, some of it sticks, but most of it falls down. I would encourage you to go back and look at that. I think it's back there as well as that historical context paper that is basically exactly what I went through last week. You can go back and revisit that. And then, <clears throat> as I encouraged you to last week, there's, there's a, uh, in the footnotes, there's a book by a guy named Eugene Merrill called Kingdom of Priests. It's an Old Testament history of Israel. And I would encourage you to, if you are interested in that and you want to know more and dive in deeper, that is definitely the place to start. Okay, grab that book off Amazon. And that, that goes into way more detail than, than I did last, last week. Last week was like a cursory look at this stuff. So just by way of, of a summation for last week, <clears throat> wanted to touch on that. Also want to remind you, some of you probably have already signed up for it, but uh, we're going to be uh, on 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 the webinar on the web tomorrow from twelve to one, and I, I told you guys last week. I'm going to say it again this week. To actually, talk to some people about it this afternoon on the phone. <laughs> it was uh, if I could make every single member of Watermark listen to this webinar tomorrow, I would. Okay, I think it's that important. I think uh, having seen enough people. Um, confused what Christianity even is, and then also walk away for, from Christianity because of, of issues. If, if, if we could just understand what we're going to be talking about tomorrow, I think that, that would be a um, really substantial, substantially substantial movement in the right direction as far as the health of our body. So if you're sitting at your desk tomorrow, or even if you're driving in the car, there's a number you can call in on your phone, and you can just kind of like listen in on it. But that's tomorrow. From 12 to 1, you can register at watermark.org forward slash equipping. And then, did everybody get the email this week that Angie sent? Uh, just kind of a reminder email. And then also, there's a suggested reading plan in that email for Yancey's book. You can kind of tell as you, if you're following along with the reading plan, it kind of skips around in the book. And the reason it does that is because uh, the way this class is structured is going to touch on topics that Yancey covers uh, not in the same order, basically. And so you're still going to read the whole book <clears throat> if you follow the reading plan. It'll just, it'll just uh, 
put that information into the same categories that we're going to be covering week to week here in this class. Or you can read it straight way through, I don't, whatever, do whatever you want. <clears throat> and, or don't read it at all. Um, but I, I would say, and I'm probably the people who are reading it would also agree, although I don't know, I'm assuming, that if you don't read it, you're going you're gonna to be missing out. <clears throat> Cool. So tonight we are going, what tonight's going to look like is we're going to cover the claims of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? This is a really fascinating topic. And so we're going to dive into it. We're going to look at a handful of claims that he made about himself from the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then we're primarily going to camp out because John's Gospel is a lot more uh, kind of camping out. Here's a good way to think about it. From when you look at the four Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to tell the story of Jesus from the ground up. And what I mean by that is they start with, uh, they start with genealogy, they start with birth, they start with childhood, um, th- these types of things. And then you, you see a picture of a very human Jesus, and then by the end of the Gospel, he is ra- raised from the dead. Right? So that, that's what I mean, like the ground up. John tells the story from, or, or from the ground to heaven. John tells the story from heaven to, to earth, right? So in John's gospel, it starts off how? In the beginning was the word. It, like, that's a really, really high Christological statement about the character and nature of Jesus. And then by the end of John, the really second, or the last third, or really even the second half of John, well, the last third, is the passion narrative, Right? where Jesus is now, he focuses primarily on the, the suffering of Jesus, Jesus' Jesus's death, his passion, um, the humanity of Jesus. And so uh, because of that, obviously John is going to focus in on um, uh, Jesus in a much more intimate way where we get a lot more claims. You get to what's commonly known as the seven I am statements of John and stuff like that. So we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, <clears throat> and... And then we're just going to draw some, some conclusions about, hey, what, where does this put us? Um, if, as, as, someone, as people who are trying to think rightly about Jesus, who he was, who he is, um, what, what, what's significant about Jesus' claims about himself? All right, so that's what tonight's going to look like. There's two different times that I've built in table discussion, so you'll get to talk with the beautiful people around your table <laughs> and uh, won't have to listen to me the whole time, and it should be hopefully a good time. So let me pray for our time. We'll jump in. Well, Jesus, we, we come in to this room and all of us are coming from uh, different places and probably just got out of traffic on LBJ. So some of our blood pressure may be high, maybe hectic days, maybe conflict with people at work or conflict with people at home or or maybe uh, we spent the whole day outside smelling the roses uh, the, we just come from a, a bunch of different places but you know uh, our hearts and I just pray that wherever we come from today as we come into this room that you would meet us where we are we're reminded and we'll continue to be reminded um, of what you, you told us, that to not let anyone call us teacher, because there's only one teacher, 
And so we pray through the power of your spirit that you come and instruct us that we might think rightly about you and more accurately and more faithfully follow you. And we pray these things in your name by the power of the spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so if you're reading Yancey, one of the, one of the, uh, uh, one of the parts that I highlight, it's one of those things where when you, when you highlight a book so much that you're highlighting the whole thing, you got to like put the highlighter down because it's failing its purpose, right? <laughs> it's like the highlights supposed to highlight a text, which you hide the whole thing, then nothing's highlighted. Um, and, and for me, that's a, a lot of time, you know, as I've started to dive into this book, that's, I was experiencing that. But one of my highlighted lines in Yancey's book is this, where, where he just says, Jesus, I found, bore little resemblance to the Mr. Rogers figure I had met in Sunday school. For, for one thing, he was far less tame, right? <laughs> I can remember, and I, I think I told you guys this last week, but I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And, and seriously, like one of my, one of the first images that I had of Jesus, aside from like the, the painting with like the, the, the kind of weak looking Caucasian figure who's like cradling a lamb, you know, um, that aside from that picture, uh, my perception and even exposure to Jesus early on as a child were, were, was uh, what is commonly known as the masterful art of felt boards, Right. You guys, well, half of you are like, what the heck is a felt board? You know, because you've never been in church. And the other half are like, I know what you're talking about, right? It's the, uh, a felt board is like a cloth deal and they take this other, uh, these other cloth, uh, cut out cloth figures and you put them up on the felt board and they, well, most of the time they stay there. And you can kind of create a scene on this board. And so in, in uh, especially the church that I grew up in, they would create these different scenes using these cloth figures. And the Jesus would, you know, get up there and he's teaching, but then he would kind of like fall off, you know. <clears throat> and uh, that's felt bored Jesus. <laughs> talking on what we were talking about last week, how you, how you, pers- how you image Jesus. <laughs> that's felt bored Jesus. And, and a lot of times, I mean, I think a, a lot of times that's what, uh, that's what a lot of people think about when they think about Jesus is is kind of this this weak tame per man who like I said last last week who's kind of all inclusive and just loved everybody and made everybody feel great about themselves and 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 was was frankly quite quite like a figure that you could take and mold into what you would have him be like and then make him your advocate which is a lot of what I talked about last week and yet, I think when you, start to, when you actually start to read the account of Jesus' life, when you start to read the Gospels, I think you, you, you come smack dab uh, into the real Jesus who, like Yancey uh, said, bore, bore little resemblance to Mr. Rogers. Right? Um, I know about Mr. Rogers. One, because I watched him, and two, because I have a three-year-old, and the PBS remake is, is called what? Anybody with a kid? Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, right? Anybody have kids? Anybody watch the show? I'm the only one. Man, it's Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, a land of make-believe. Uh, I really am the only one. <clears throat> uh, but at the end, there's a trolley, and he goes, ding, ding. You know. <laughs> anyway, my, welcome to my world. Um, but yeah, this, there's, everything's kind of like really nice. There's never any conflict. There's never any... And, and, and you, uh, the, the, the problem with reality is, is, is that when you enter into reality... Um, all of those uh, preconceptions that you have tend to just fall away. And, and they fall away pretty quickly. So, 
Lewis said, and in, in, in by Lewis, I mean C.S. Lewis, uh, or Jack, the way he liked to be called. In his book, The Four Loves, he says this. He said, Jesus was not at all like the psychologist's picture of the integrated, balanced, adjusted, happily married, employed, popular citizen. Right? Um, you, can't, you can't really be very well adjusted to your world if it says you have a devil and ends by nailing you up naked to a stake of wood. Okay, so whatever our perception of Jesus is and, and whatever Jesus was, however he was living his life, the way that he lived his life, the types of things that he said, the types of things that he did, um, the, the consequence of those things was that he ticked off a whole lot of people and got executed for it. Right? So, so whatever our perception of him is, it needs to include that. So that we're not thinking of, of Jesus in a way, again, like I said last week, that doesn't make us at least a little bit uncomfortable. And so there's a bunch of different ways that people view Jesus in, in society today. And so I thought we'd take maybe 10 minutes or so. It's 7.15, so we'll come back about 7.25. What I want you to do is just discuss among your table what are some of, what are some of the most common or popular um, ideas that, that you think people hold um, around who Jesus, um, who they think Jesus was, but also how they perceived Jesus to be, um, how he believed himself to be. So take, take about 10 minutes and uh, have a discussion, and we'll, we'll come back and talk about it. Let's come on back. And we've got a uh, – hey, is that, is that you, Connor? I'm trying to see. Will you get up and uh, pass the mic around, please? And uh, Chris, will you do this with this one? Um, just switch it on and off as, it, uh, as, as we're using it. Yes. Um, the music. It's too loud. Distraction. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll turn it down. Thanks. No problem. Okay, so as we as we do come back, let's. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody willing to share kind of what y'all's conversation looked like, and anybody want to? I saw some people laughing right here. Normally, when you laugh, it's like. Chris, why don't you give the mic to the to the brother there? Let him. <laughs> Anytime somebody's like, "You don't want to get on this train," I'm like, "Yes, I do." Make sure it's on. I think it is on. Um, just make sure it's on. What'd you guys talk about? We we went all over the place. We're like a tie-dye mic t-shirt. up to your yeah. There you go. So, uh, one of the things that we started talking about was kind of how a common theme regardless of what the viewpoint that somebody has of Jesus, the common theme that seems to be omitted a lot of the time is the authoritative aspect that he has. You know, if he's a peacemaker, if he's a teacher, but it seems like, you know, the authoritative ruler or Lord that he also Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. is always the last thing that comes to someone's mind. It's like the unwillingness to submit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was sitting at this table down, down here and there was a similar, Similar vein. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's very much like a. Uh, I know one of was your name Sonia? Is that what he? Sunny. I'm sorry. Sunny was saying that uh, you know y- people used to print the T-shirts like Jesus is my homeboy, you know, and your homeboy is not the one who's going to like step up and be like, you know, you need to change. And oh, by the way, I have the authority to tell you how to change and what you should do and not do. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. That is, I would say, that's a really common perception that people have about even how Jesus viewed himself, which is really fascinating. Uh, Typically, I find that when people are talking about 
this is, oh, I, this is the way, I'm pretty sure this, this is the way Jesus thought about himself. Um, I, even though I asked the question, uh, most of the time I already know the answer, and that is, well, have you read the Gospels? And typically the answer is, well, you know, this and there, John 3.16, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, anybody else? Anybody else want to share what you guys talked about? <laughs> Reticence is what I smell. <laughs> Nobody? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, Connor, will you? Right here. I first heard a lot of people talk about him like he they kind of liken him to like MLK or mm. Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Like he's this great man, but that's about it as far as it goes. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I was going to say I, I'm he's glad a great you, pacifist like yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah, nail on the head. I mean, I was going to say I had a lunch with a guy yesterday who's not Christian. Had a great conversation with him. Nice dude. Um, and uh, as as we Actually, one of the things we're going to talk about the webinar tomorrow, I'm going to keep pushing that thing. Um, one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow is a lot of times people, and this is just a, this is a, this is a free apologetic aside, right? Um, but a lot of times what people try to do, and, and it's, it's no fault of their own. This is a, a lot of times just the way our, the culture presents the conversation is we present a Christianity that focuses all on the peripheral issues. So like... Um, I know this is not going to sound peripheral to some of you, but like, hey, wh- why? I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Right? Or I can't believe in a Jesus who would get angry at people and judge them. I can't believe in, and then they'll even go even out more peripheral than that and say, I can't believe in Christianity because science totally contradicts it. And obviously the earth is 50 billion years old and you guys say it's whatever. And uh, one, I would say, and this is exactly where this guy went yesterday, to these peripheral issues. And whenever you're in a conversation like that, just remember, um, people can be jacked up in their theology on all the peripheral issues, but there's an order to the way that we think about things. And the order is you start with the core central issues of Christianity. And the very core central issue of Christianity is who is Jesus, why did he die on the cross, and is the, and is the tomb empty? That's it, Right? And so that's where I, I brought the conversation and continued to bring it because he kept chasing rabbits over there. Whoa, there's a rabbit, you know, come on back here. You know? So I bring him back here and, and just be like, hey, what, what do you do with this? What do you do with Jesus? Which is so fascinating because people will have all these God conversations all day long. Oh yeah, God and this and God and that. And, and, and then you introduce Jesus into the equation and all of a sudden things can go sideways really fast. Right? Because just like he did 2,000 years ago, when you present Jesus accurately as, as he is and as he's, as he's presented in the Gospels, then uh, there's a dividing line. Right? And, and it becomes pretty clear that you're standing on one side or the other. And, and, so I, I, and just like this guy yesterday, I, mean, I, I asked him that question, like, hey, how, much, how familiar, familiar are you with the Gospels? And his answer was, well, I, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so I've heard stories, but I've never actually, like, investigated it uh, myself. So just know that the vast majority of people that you're going to interact with outside of, and, and frankly, honestly, even maybe even the majority of people that you're going to interact with, with in, at Watermark, right, have not read the Gospels. 
They, they, they aren't familiar with the biblical text about this man. They're, they're thinking about Jesus. Frankly, they're getting all their information about Jesus from a Twitter soundbite, um, which is really dangerous. That's what we talked about last week. Right? So, um, guys, you, you, can, you can sit down. But, so, we're not going to do Twitter soundbites in here. Oh, you got one more? Want to share? Yeah, hang on for a second, because we're recording this. Everybody wants to hear your voice. <clears throat> uh, is it by on? everybody, yes, I mean me. <laughs> uh, in reference to that, though, you know, when you you say to people, uh, "What are you going to, what, what, how, how, what are you going to do with this Jesus?" Uh-huh. and and their answer is, "Well, I really don't have to do anything yep. unless you force me." Yep. Yeah, and yep. and that's that's presents an argument. Yeah, and I told this guy yesterday. Um, I, I I reinforced this point. He didn't bring it up. I actually brought it up. I said, "Hey, you, um, you can sit on this and and do nothing, but you just need to know that that your response of doing nothing is an answer." And you need to be comfortable with the outcome of that answer. Because Jesus, as we'll see tonight, Jesus didn't, Jesus, Jesus didn't leave any option for like a, a middle ground where you can just let him be and expect for your, for your life not to be impacted by your passivity and lack of examining his life. So that's what I told this guy yesterday. And I also said, but it's your journey and it's your decision. So, I, you know, I'm going to be with, I'm going to walk with him as quickly or as slowly as he wants to go. And I think we need to do the same with people. So let's, we're not going to do Twitter soundbite stuff in here. We're going to look at the text. All right. So get your Bible out. We're going to be in the Bible the rest of the time. And turn to Mark chapter two. So when I, when it says the synoptics up here, that's obviously, like I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the reason it's called the synoptics is because there's like a, a synthesis to Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, they very much mirror one another. Sometimes they mirror one another verbatim. They're using the exact same language to tell the story. There's a whole other deal about that. Would it point you to the equipping page where we did a training day called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And would encourage you to go listen to that stuff for a lot of this background information. But let's look at Mark 2, 1 through 12. A few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So Capernaum is, in the nor- is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which obviously is in Galilee. It's in the northern part of Israel. This is where Jesus was born and raised um, in, in Nazareth in Galilee, just a, kind of a stone's throw from the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, so many gathered, uh, so many gathered there. There was no room left, not even outside the door. He preached the word to them. Some, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the, in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the, mat, uh, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their, saw their faith, which is really interesting, but when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were, were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus looked, turned and looked at the paralytic and said, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God and said, we've never seen anything like this. Okay. 
<clears throat> what, what's significant about this? Well, you have a guy who's, who's kind of an itinerant preacher. He, he's, his, he's from Nazareth, but his home base is in Capernaum. And, and in Capernaum, he's preaching. And probably what's, what's going on is, is there, people lived in these like compound type houses that typically had a courtyard. There may, Jesus may have been in a courtyard. He may have been actually in a room. We don't know. The text seems to say that there was a roof, if not directly above Jesus' head, close to him, where this guy is lowered down and, and brought to Jesus. But there, there's, there's enough people in this courtyard or in this house that people, you can't just walk in. It's, people are pressed in on Jesus to hear him teach, and he's, and he's teaching them the word of God. And, and here comes this paralytic. Now remember, and I said this last week, we're going to try to do the best we can to try to be there, right? um, to try to put ourselves into the story so that we can, in our mind's eye, as best we can, experience what's happening in, as it's going on. So picture yourself there. You, you're you're in, maybe in, the, in that courtyard. Maybe you're you know, a, a couple of people behind Jesus, but he's right over there, and you're listening to him teach, and he's teaching. And, and there's something about his teaching that you're just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, what he said. Um, there, there's, a, there's an attractiveness to it. Obviously, there's an attractiveness to it because wherever he goes, lots of people are following him. And not just because he's doing miracles, but also to lean in to, to what he's saying. And so there's an attractiveness about him. And, and yet there's also, and you recognize in the crowd that there's like, but there's religious leaders as well here and they're listening to him. He's teaching not just to common people. There's also religious leaders there listening to him as well. And as you're listening to him teach, we don't know what he was teaching about, but as you're listening to him teach, there's a commotion. And you guys know, like you've been in an audience before when like a kid cries too loud or somebody becomes you know, rambunctious and gets escorted out or whatever. So <clears throat> there's a distraction and you look over there and it's like, oh man, what are these dudes doing? Like that guy's, he's on like this stretcher looking thing and they're trying to get him down and pro- probably people are like, you know, go away or whatever. And they're trying to finagle their way until finally they're like, all right, we're just going to like take the roof off, <laughs> right? They, they feel comfortable enough, whether it was their house or not, probably it was not their house, but they're like, well, we can probably, maybe they're a bunch of roofers, you know, hey, we'll put it right back, just chill. <clears throat> so they, they take off the roof, lower their friend down to Jesus. And then there's like a, there's a hush because Jesus seems to turn to them and, and, and is okay with them bringing the man. May, perhaps as they're bringing this paralyzed man to him, Jesus approaches them and and begins to engage them. And he sees the faith of the paralytic's friends that they're bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus. And he has compassion on this man. And, and the next thing out of his mouth, you, 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 remember, you're hearing him teach the word of God and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. You can just imagine that the audience almost like takes a step back and is like, wait, what? What did you just say? In fact, we, we know that at least some of the audience did because the religious leaders, um, immediately Jesus knows, he knows that they are, I mean, the, the, fact that, the fact that the text says Jesus knew that they were thinking in their hearts um, who, who can for, for, forgive sins but God alone? Because the audience, you, there's almost like a, like a gasp and they do step back and there is like a, what? Um, 
because the implication is clear. Jesus is at least acting like that he has the authority to forgive this man's sin. And, and what's even crazier is he's acting like that, that the paralytic sins, that Jesus was the one chiefly offended by the paralytic, who he probably has never even met before. So here's a modern day parallel, right? Chris Delaney, buddy of mine, let's say he goes ballistic, loses his marbles, jumps up on the stage and starts punching me in the face, right? Well, that would be a, that would be a distraction um, in, in the room. Most of y'all would be like, what? You know, um, <clears throat> hopefully some of my friends would jump in and help me out, you know? <laughs> Chris is a big guy. <clears throat> But let's say that he punches me in the face and, and then uh, Connor, my buddy, sitting over here, walks over and, and af- after we're separated and, you know, I'm, um, after we're separated, Connor comes over and looks at Chris and says, hey, Chris, I forgive you for hitting Nathan. Yeah, you guys are laughing because it's funny. It, it's, it's outrageous is what it is. And yet, in that context, in that day, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Right. Hey, all those sins that you've sinned against all these other people, yeah, they're not the ones who are chiefly offended by your sin. I am. That's crazy. No wonder there's, <laughs> no wonder there's controversy around this man. So his claim is he has the authority to forgive sin in the world. Let's look at Matthew 23. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 23. Toward the end of the chapter, if you want to know what Jesus really thought about the Pharisees, just read Matthew 23. But we're going to skip that part and just look at verses 34 to 39. So Jesus is talking about, he's talking to the Pharisees, to their face. He's calling them all sorts of th- things, which again, <laughs> Mr. Rogers does not do this. <laughs> um, let's see. It, actually, I'm just going to summarize this, right? Hypocrites. Um, hypocrites. Blind guides. Sons of hell. Blind fools. Blind men. Hypocrites, <laughs> hypocrites, hypocrites, blind Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. Um, on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. Um, hypocrites, hi- hypocrites, wicked hypocrites. Uh, man, I'm just cursory reading this, right? You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the, uh, being condemned to hell? Right. Well, let's pick up right there, okay? Therefore, I am, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation." Um, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is toward the end of Matthew's gospel, which you could guess also... Uh, one of the things that follows this conversation is not just the triumphal entry, but the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus. What's crazy about this, and Jesus talks in, in, in a present tense, but he also talks in past tense in this, and, and, and most people agree that, that uh, he's, he's referring to uh, the fact that all down through the ages that God had sent prophets, wise men, teachers to Israel to call them to repentance. So again, we talked about the history of Israel. We talked about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, uh, the Greeks, all of these people who are coming. And all throughout, as the prophets are writing during this different time periods, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sending prophets to the nations, to, to Israel, the nation. And he's telling them, you have got to repent. You've got to quit relying on all of these political alliances that you're making with these other nations because these other nations cannot protect you, but I can. So repent of your alliances and turn to me, the only rightful king of Israel. Right? And then here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, um, Oh, by the way, um, I've sent these prophets and wise men to you all down through the ages. I've longed to gather you under my wing as a chick gathers her hens, but you, you have not been willing. And so because of that, because of your unwillingness, because of your hard-heartedness, your house is left to you desolate. I've wanted to, I've wanted to cl- not only clean out, but rebuild, renovate, make, it, make your house a palace that I would come live in, and you have not been willing. And so in this and, and nobody seems to like pay too much attention to this. I mean, some people do, <laughs> right? But, but when we read it, um, Jesus is claiming to be the power behind the one who, he's claiming to be the very one who all down through the ages has sent prophets and wise men to Israel, right? And so you're, you're looking at this. I mean, again, if you're listening, to one, one, if you're listening to this, you're kind of like, dude, I don't know, like, I'm not sure that I want to stand too close to you right now because of the, the religious leaders are, are getting really angry at you and they're powerful. And yet Jesus, at the end of his, this kind of diatribe against the religious leaders, claims to be the very one who all down through the ages has sent prophets to Israel. That's unique. <laughs> yeah. Look at Matthew 26. So just a few pages over. A few pages over and Jesus is on trial, right? <laughs> Go figure. Matthew 26, 62 to 65. He's before, he's, he's already been arrested. He's now standing before the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, is, is, is questioning him. The high priest, starting in verse 62, then then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. One of, one of the, the, the titles that Jesus refers to himself as is not just the son of David, which, as we talked about last week, was this, was this claim to, to have the right to fulfill the messianic role to be the king of Israel. He's the son of David. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant, Yahweh made a covenant with David that said, um, someone from your line will perpetually rule in Israel. And Jesus shows up and says, that's me. <laughs> so... He also refers himself, to himself as the son of man. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and let's look at who the son of man is. You're going to go left <laughs> to the Old Testament. Not too far left, but left. starting in verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel's writing during the exilic period in Babylon, and he has the, Daniel is a book of a series of visions that Daniel has about future things, and this is one of the visions that Daniel has. Starting in verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, Okay. Again, with this type of language, we're almost immediately know that there's something unique about this Son of Man because he is coming with the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven is associated with some sort of divinity. He approached the, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language, what? They worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. So let's flip back to Matthew 26, 62-ish. 64, actually. Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Right? And he's talking about himself. All, all throughout the gospel, he's, he is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And in case, in case you think this may have been ambiguous or unclear to the people who are standing there, Remember, if you're, if you're in the Sanhedrin and you're listening to him say this, the next verse should clarify it for us, right? Then Jesus, the high, or I'm sorry, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, he's worthy of death. Because Jesus is making a very explicit claim to, to his uh, character and nat- nature that is the Son of Man who has been given authority by the Ancient of Days to rule and, and judge the nations. 
And, and, and not just to judge the nations, but he's in a position where uh, all of the people around him from every tribe, tongue, and, la- and, and nation worship him. Right? So he, he's claiming to be the judge of the world, which is really ironic because in that moment, he was sitting in the place of judgment, right? People are judging him. And I think, frankly, in a really... Uh, kind of twist in, in a, I mean, the, the irony of this is just dripping off the page, right? It, it's, it's, it's Caiaphas looking at Jesus and going, hey, I am going to judge you. And it's almost like Jesus looks straight back at him and says, be careful what you do. Because if anybody in this room has the right to judge anybody, it's me. And ultimately, I'm going to be the one who judges you. So tread softly. And, 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 I, and frankly, I, I think they got the message, um, blasphemy, that, that this man would claim to be this divine one, this divine son of man whom the nations worship and, and who has the authority and will judge all of the nations of the world. You know, go, going off what this table s- said earlier, um, he is, if, if anybody is the judge, if anybody is, it's Jesus. Or at least that's his claim. Okay? These are just a few of the ones that we see from the Synoptic Gospels. But now we're going to rapid fire through the Gospel of John. So <clears throat> turn to the right to John chapter 1, verse 51. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pretty quickly on most of these. There will be probably four or five of them that I'll camp out on for just a minute just to give you some background so you can un- kind of understand what he's saying. Um, actually, I just covered one of them just now, but we'll look at it again briefly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1, verse 51. This is when Jesus is calling his his disciples and Nathaniel uh, uh, approaches him, or Jesus approaches Nathaniel, which is who's one of the disciples. Um, and actually, uh, when when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, uh, he it kind of gives us an idea about what Na- how Nazareth was viewed in at the day, right? Uh, in, in that day, is is Nathaniel? He says, "Nazareth? What are you talking about? Can anything good come from there?" Uh, is what Nathaniel asks. So I'm from Arkansas, uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody else from Arkansas? We got any Razorbacks in the house? Normally there's a few. That's what I'm talking about. Pig Suey back there. All right. There is a town. I, when I used, to, I used to, I mean, I've taught this for a while, but uh, there's a town in Arkansas. If you go up towards Jonesboro, which is where Arkansas State University is, about 15 or so miles south of Jonesboro, and you'd have to map que- or Google Maps it. I don't, maybe it's 15. Maybe I, it's a close drive from Jonesboro, <clears throat> is, is the uh, booming agricultural town of Wiener, Arkansas. Right? <laughs> this is an actual place. Uh, and there's a John Deere, uh, f- there's a John Deere st- store there that sells farming equipment because that's what they do in Wiener, Arkansas. They farm. But as soon as you hear the word Wiener, Arkansas, probably one of the first things you would think is, okay, seriously, like, is, is anything good going to come out of Wiener, Arkansas? 
<clears throat> and I mean, gum, I just said Arkansas and you guys laughed at me. Not, not, I was like, I got to narrow it down to like Wiener, Arkansas. But I just said Arkansas and y'all were like, ha it's funny. <clears throat> so we know about Nazareth. We can at least gain some kind of insight from Nazareth in the fact that it doesn't have the greatest reputation because Nathaniel is going, hey, can anything good come out of there? Which the implied answer is what? No, <laughs> no, it nothing good comes out of that. And Jesus sees Nathanael approaching, this is verse 47 in John 1, um, and he says, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And, and Nathanael asked, but how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And I could just see like Jesus is like, really? You believe because I told you you were under the fig tree? Man, dude, you're going to see a lot greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth, you're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now again, there's his claim to be the Son of Man. And he's talking about the heavens opened and angels ascending and descending. Where else have we seen the angels descending and ascending on someone in the Old Testament? Who? Jacob's ladder. Who do, when, when Jacob wrestles with, with God, who does God name Jacob? Israel. And obviously people in in that context would know, like, well, yeah, this is, you're talking, they they get the imagery that Jesus is saying. And ultimately what he's saying is, hey, you will see angels uh, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And and ultimately he's saying, um, hey, I am the true Israelite. What Israel was always meant to be um, is fulfilled fully in my person. That's, that's a bold claim. John chapter 3, verse 13. Let's look at that real quick. Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, again, there it is again. So he's, he's claiming to, that his origin, or at least where he came from, is heaven. Again, um, not an explicit claim to deity, but he's flirting with it. John chapter 4, verse 14. This is uh, where, when Jesus is talking to the woman, at uh, the Samaritan woman at, at the well in, in Samaria. He says this, um, a little bit of context, uh, starting in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you, you've, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Because Jesus is claiming that he can give her living water. It's a whole other thing. Are, are, you, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, as did also his sons and the flocks and the herds? And Jesus said, everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. What? <laughs> again, if you're his disciples, and, and you have to remember, like... Uh, the, uh, Jesus, one, it's, it's, it's controversial that he's even talking to this woman. Uh, even more controversial that she's like been sleeping around and has, has, has been with like five different men and the, and, and the man that she's with now is not her husband. And, and, and he's saying, uh, telling her in this controversial type conversation, hey, I can give you, I can give you a water that will, that will make you never thirst again. And she's like, where do I get this water? And he's like, look, if, if you believe in me, 
um, then, and drink the water that I'm giving to you, then you will never thirst again. Actually, if you drink it, there will well up inside of you a spring of water that will result in eternal life. Right? And, and frankly, if you're not scratching your head, if you're following Jesus and you're not scratching your head by this point, there's probably something wrong. You're not paying attention. John 4, 26, the, the woman says, um, she's like, our father worshiped on this mountain and the, and, and the, and the, the Jews claim that this is a place and we must worship in Jerusalem, but you know, where are we going to worship? And, and, and Jesus says in, in verse 26, it, it, um, that, or he says in the context prior to that, um, the Messiah is come and when he comes, um, we'll, we'll worship in both spirit and truth. And the woman says, I know he's coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am the Messiah. <laughs> okay. Now he's starting to get a little bit more explicit. Right? He is the Messiah. Now you need to understand that the messianic claim um, in, 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 uh, Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, right, is not necessary. Not necessarily, and, and frankly, I don't think she would have perceived this, or his disciples perceived this either. This is not an explicit claim to deity. He's only talking about him, himself fulfilling the role of the Messiah, which, which in that case, would have applied all of their expect, their mental expectations of this warrior king that we talked about last time, and so. When Jesus is saying Messiah, now I, I think that when he's claiming this, he is intending the fullness of the meaning, but I'm telling you, that's not necessarily what they heard him say. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Let's look at John 5, 17 and 18. So a little bit of context here as well. He, he's going to... Uh, the pool of Bethesda, it's by the sheep gate on the eastern side of, of, the, of Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus approaches this, this invalid person who had been there for 38 years. Like that's, I mean, I'll be 38 in November. That's a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there, this is verse 6, when he saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he said, what did, which is, man, this is a fascinating question, right? Um, he says, <clears throat> Do you want to get well? All right, here's another 50 cent free, you know, free thing for you, okay? Aside, it's a rabbit trail, whatever. I like rabbits. <clears throat> um, whenever you're talking to people in a pastoral type setting who uh, their life's a train wreck, their life's falling apart, right? Then typically when you're talking to these people, there's, there's a way forward to, to help pretty much everybody. If they'll just do the, if they'll just take the steps in order to get well, if they'll agree with the process that the Holy Spirit has brought about in their lives to actually find healing through the power of the Holy Spirit. But, but in order to do that, we have to agree with the Holy Spirit, which means we have to agree that what Jesus says about himself is true, and we have to actually submit to that. And so people, a lot of times, will, will, will sit on the throne of their lives, and the, the, the natural cons- consequence of them sitting on the throne in their lives is their life becomes really chaotic and destructive. Because guess what happens when you're the king? Chaos and destruction. And so um, it's a very, it's a very uh, pertinent question in that moment that when someone 
um, is, has experienced chaos and destruction and now they want to change or, or they at least perceive or they give the perception that they want to change, it's a really good question to, to kind of gently put your arm around them and be like, hey, hey brother, hey, sister, um, do you want to get well? Because frankly, what most people do is most people want the pain and destruction to go away without them getting off the throne of their life. And, and th- that's just like, that's, that's just a logical fallacy. It's impossible for that to happen. In order for the pain and chaos and destruction to stop, you've got to get off the throne of your life because that's what's causing the pain and chaos and destruction. And so just as you're thinking about helping people, if, as people are like, yeah, yeah, I really, I really want to change, I really want to change, but they're not actually agreeing with the Holy Spirit, I think a really natural and good question to ask them is, hey, do you, re- do you, do you really want to get well? Um, and, and this is what Jesus is asking the invalid. The invalid replied, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool and the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He gives them excuses, right? And then in verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Again, the law does not forbid them to carry his mat. The oral law does. But again, in this context, the Pharisees are talking to this man because they consider the oral law on the same authoritative level as Torah which is why Jesus has beef with these guys. And he said, you're making the law into something that was never intended to be. So right here, we're seeing a great example of that. But, but he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk, right? So the guy's deflecting responsibility onto Jesus, which is frankly what all of us would do. And, and then in verse 12, he says, so they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd um, that, that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well again, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Probably what's happening is this guy was invalid. I'm, I'm totally assuming this is not in the text, but I think the text, the, the context of the text implies it. So probably what happened is this guy was not able to work. And so he was begging for a living and Jesus heals him. And he goes, he goes and just puts his mat in a different place in the temple, probably by the southern steps, which is where a lot of people were because that was a main entrance. And he probably put his mat back down and was probably acting like he was invalid again and was continuing to beg, even though now he was, a fully, a, a, he was fully able to work and, and, and should have worked, right? So Jesus comes to him and says, dude, you're well. Stop sinning or something else is going to happen to you. Um, and the man went away and told the, G, uh, the Jews that, that it was Jesus who, who made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him, and Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Right. John five twenty seven. Start in verse 26. For as the, as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given the Son, the, has given him the authority to judge because the Son is the Son of Man. Okay? He's repeating himself. 
So again, like we've already talked about, so I'm not going to touch on it again, but he's, he's claiming to be exactly what he claimed to be at, at his trial in front of Caiaphas, where he claimed to be the eschatological judge in Daniel chapter 7. John 5, 36 and 37, I'm not going to read these because of time constraints, but you can go back, you have the slides, you can go back and look at them. Um, he claims that the Father testifies concerning him. Um, actually, no, I am going to read that because that's really important. <clears throat> All these are really important. Dad, come it. Um, <clears throat> All right, verse 36. He says, I have a testimony that's weightier than John. He's talking about John the Baptist. For the very work that the Father has done, has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And, and, and the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. God, listen to this. Listen to verse 39 and 40. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by the scripture you can possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. (laughs) I mean... The, the Jews were known at the very center of their identity was Torah, the scripture, a book. When you talk to a Jew and, and try to explain their life and their identity apart from Torah, good luck with that. This is who they are. And here's what Jesus says. He comes and shows up. And again, you, we're, again we're following him through all of this. And, and he's saying these things. And we're like, okay, I mean, What? But he looks at the Pharisees and he says, look, you, you think that a book is going to bring you life, but it, but, but it won't. It can't. Because the book is doing something that you are not paying attention to. The book is talking about me. Right, now, now you're not just scratching your head. Now, now you're kind of like, hey, I got to take a siesta from this, right? I got I to gotta go take a break. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, Jesus is claiming that, that the, very, the very book that, that is the foundation for the identity of Israel, um, it, that the, the very subject of that book is, is Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This itinerant preacher who looks like a normal guy and who, who grew up. I mean, maybe, maybe we would, if we were there, maybe we would have grown up with him and played with him when he was a kid. Um. Who knows? He was a normal guy. He was a normal guy. There was nothing about him that would, that would make us think like, oh, there's God in the flesh. He's not like levitating or anything. Like oh, he's not floating around. Again, you punch him, he bleeds. He needs to go to the bathroom. He's got to sleep. He's got to eat. And he's saying, all of scripture testifies about me. John 6 if you turn the page into chapter six, this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. He says, um, I give food to eternal life. Um, when, when you, and he says in, in John six, I don't talk about this right now, but, uh, or, or won't go into uh, the, the text right now about this, but, but he says, if you want to take part in me, if you want to come after me, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Right? So, so he's saying th- something where he's like, if you are partaking in, 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 my, in the Jesus kind of life, then the Jesus kind of life is going to result in you eternal life. 
What comes from you partaking of a Jesus kind of life is eternal life. You know, when you eat, when you eat greasy pizza, the result of that is indigestion or, you know, uh, worse stuff than that. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus is saying, yeah but, if you, yeah, but if you eat me, the result of that is eternal life. Um, you got to remember, Jesus is not the only one who's ever like made made these types of claims before. There's been plenty of there's been plenty of messiahs out there who who are making outstanding claims, which is why next week is so important, right? We're going to talk about what did Jesus do about his claims. But and and frankly too, I mean, there's even a place in in Jerusalem, I, I think, uh, the last I heard, where where they literally have a place reserved for where they throw the nutcases who go there claiming to be the messiah. And so there, we, we, have a, we have a place for people like this. It's, it's a mental hospital. It's, a, it's an institution whereby we care for these people who are delusional. And Jesus is saying these types of things. He gives food to eternal life. He is the bread of life. There's a couple of uh, apocryphal works that apocryph- the apocryphal uh, 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 works were written during that intertestamental time where all the chaos was going on, and probably where most of you got lost last week. <laughs> all right, but Second Baruch twenty nine, second century BC. So it's right uh, during the time where power is shifting from the Egyptians, uh, uh, yeah, from the Egyptians to the Syrians. It says this, and it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it of those years because. These are they who have arrived at the consummation of time. So, again, this is talking about the Messiah, the, this consummation of times, like day of the Lord type imagery, where one of, the, one of the signs for this is that treasury of manna or bread will come down again, referring to when, uh, God, when Yahweh fed the nation of Israel in the desert um, uh, by Moses, and, and the manna will come down again from on high. Um, again, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, uh, book one, says this, as the former redeemer, i.e. Moses, um, caused a manna to descend, as it is stated, behold, I will, cause rain, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you, Exodus 16. So will the latter redeemer, the second Moses, cause manna to descend, as it is stated, may he be as a rich cornfield in the land, Psalm 72, right? And then what does Jesus do? Hey, how, how much bread and fish do we have? Well, we've got five loaves and two fish. It's enough. There's, again, there's 5,000 people. There's 5,000 men. There's the only ones counted. Sorry, ladies and children, but that's the way it was. There's 5,000 men. So there's probably 15,000 plus people there. And this kid brings five loaves and two fish, and Jesus says, that's enough. <laughs> Man, I'm going to be getting like one, I'm going to be getting like one crumb, you know. And yet, what you find is Jesus takes this and he feeds 15,000 people with it. And guess what happens in John 6? What does the crowd do? Anybody familiar with this passage? The crowd takes Jesus and tries to make him the king. Why? Because they knew these passages. They knew the messianic expectation. They knew the second Moses. They knew the second redeemer was going to come. And so when Jesus feeds people, when he causes bread to rain from heaven, people are like, there he is. Right? 
And what's crazy is Jesus does this twice. He does it with the 5,000, he does it again with 4,000. John 6, 44, he'll raise the dead. <laughs> John 7, 37, 38. Got to talk about this one really quickly because I want to give time, you guys time for some table discussion here in a minute. But <clears throat> this is John 7. This is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. <clears throat> I got to set this up for you because it's, it's just a fun thing to look at. Starting verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast. Okay, what feast is this? This is the feast of the ingathering or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. This is the feast that just was uh, preceded the day of atonement on the 10th day of Tishri or, uh, in the, on the Jewish calendar. And in the feast of ingatherings, what people would do is they would come and live in booths and they would feast for seven days. And then on the last and greatest day of the feast, feast here's what would happen. Again, it's also called ingathering because it's during the harvest time and they're pulling their crops in. And as they're pulling their crops in, as an agrarian society, what do you think they're praying for? They're praying for next year's crop because they need to eat again. <laughs> and so they're, they're pulling the crops in and, and on the last and greatest day of the feast, what the high priest would do is he would take a chalice or a cup and take it down to the pool at Siloam, which is a, a little bit of a distance from the temple mount to the south of the temple. And he would dip this chalice into the pool of Siloam and he would carry it. And there's like a, it's like a parade. There's people lining the streets and they're waving palm branches and they're shouting out these various psalms that people uh, sang during that feast. And so they're doing the liturgy of the feast and people are waving palm branches and they're crying out this psalm that says, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Anybody know what Hosanna means? Besides Connor, <laughs> right? Yeah, it says, Lord, save. And, and there's, a, there's like a, there's a sense of urgency about it. God, save us now. Do it now. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us now. Now, I think what they're thinking about is send rain so we can grow a crop and eat again, right? But, but Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the high priest is carrying this chalice from the pool of Siloam all the way into the temple. Anybody, anybody been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? It's now the Dome of the Rock. Um, and and uh, uh, there's a few Muslim prayer places there. Yeah, great. When you walk in, when I walked in uh, to the Temple Mount, one of the things that struck me about it was how large this place is. And I think most of the time, at least I did growing up, I was like, oh yeah, the Temple Mount may have like, may be able to seat a few thousand people or whatever. No, this place is like, there's probably thousands of people there. And the high priest is kind of moving through the crowd with this cup of water and he brings it up to the altar in, in the inner temple. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the inner courtyard where the altar is, where they do all the sacrifices. And, and he um, is going to pour out this cup on the base of the altar. But, but he first stands up above the people and he raises the cup and prays a prayer. And when he does so, the, there's a hush on the crowd because again, you don't have like PA systems. It's not like he's like uh, testing one, two, can you guys hear me, right? Um, there is no such thing. So he stands up above the crowd with his chalice and he lifts it up to the heavens and he prays a prayer of salvation. And, then he, and, and, and as he's praying that prayer of salvation, people are leaning in to listen to him because they wanna hear what he's saying. So there's a hush that goes over the crowd. And then at the end of that prayer, he pours the water out at the base of the altar, signifying, Lord, we're praying for rain to sustain us to have for next year's harvest, right? That's what's happening on the last and greatest day of the feast. Let's look at it. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now, knowing the context of the last and greatest day of the feast, the only time that Jesus could have shouted above the people so that people could actually hear him was exactly when the high priest raised that chalice to the heavens and started praying a prayer of salvation. 
And while he's doing that, among thousands, probably tens of thousands of people, here is this rabbi over here who somehow gets above the crowd and says, is anybody thirsty? <laughs> Let him come to me. <laughs> I mean, as scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. <laughs> right? I mean, you're looking at the, you're on the Temple Mount and you're watching the high priest, you're trying to hear what he says, and then this guy is screaming in your ear, and you're like, what? Isn't that the guy from Galilee? Mr. Rogers, my butt, right? Sorry. I was going to say something else, I toned it down. So, but maybe I shouldn't even have said that, sorry. John 8, 12, he's the light of the world. John 8, 42, he came from God, the Father sent him. John 8, 54, the Father glorifies him. And then John 8, 58, we'll camp out here. Starting in verse 54, Jesus replies, he's talking to the Pharisees again. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. If I said I didn't, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it. Abraham saw my day, and he was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself. He slipped away from the temple grounds. This is the most explicit claim that Jesus makes in in all of the Gospels. Because if you know anything about Exodus, when when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and and Moses said, hey, who am I supposed to say sent me? to set the people of Israel free. And Yahweh said, you tell them that I am sent you. And Jesus stands up in front of the Jews and he says, before Abraham was even born, I am. He is claiming to be Yahweh, nothing less, nothing less than that. John 10, seven to nine He's the door. John 10, 11 to 14, he's the good shepherd. 10, 18, he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Crazy. John 10, 28, he gives eternal life. John 10, 30, he is one with the Father. John 11, 25 and 26, this is where uh, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and Martha comes to him and says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And, and, and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know he'll rise again on the last day, on the day of resurrection. And Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live um, even though he dies. He's... he's He's the resurrection and the life. That the resurrection and the life is not some abstract concept. It's a person that you can know, that you're friends with, 
I tell Nate all the time, my son, I'm like, Nate, if you're friends with Jesus, you can't die. Even if you do die, he's going to make your heart start, start beating again. Right? Because when you're tied to Jesus, you, you cannot die. He is the life. John 13, he's teacher and Lord. John 14, 6, he is the way and the truth and the life and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. He is the revelation of the Father. He is the true vine. Man, there's so much behind this. I wish I had time to talk to you guys about, but maybe next time. I said, check out Isaiah 5 on that one. John 18, verse 37, where Pilate is interviewing him. And he says, um, are you a king? And, 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 Je- and, and Jesus' reply to him is, it is as you say. And, and ultimately what he's saying is, you, you're sub- you're, you submit to Caesar, um, but the only one who has the right to be king over anything is me. So take about, take about four or five minutes. I'll come back for the last one or two minutes and sum it all up. But, but take the next four or five minutes and just talk among your group. Ha- having just examined his claims, how does this affect your perception of him and why? All right, so y'all talk about it. All right, well, let's... I'm sorry you guys couldn't have more time. I wish you could have. Actually, if you want to stay after and keep talking, be free to do that. But I want to make sure we let out on time. So I, I want to examine these one more time. Um, and then I want to read a quote, and then we'll be done. These are Jesus' claims about himself from John. I'm the true, I'm not going to say I because it's not me. So this is Jesus' claims. Jesus is the true Israelite. He's, he's the elect of God. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus gives living water. He's the Messiah. God is his father. He's equal with God. Jesus is the eschatological judge. What eschatological judge means is, is the judge at the end of time who's going to sort out the nations, Right? The Father testifies about him. Scripture testifies about him. Jesus gives food to eternal life. He's the bread of life. He'll raise the dead. He gives living water. He's the light of the world. He came from God. The Father sent him. The Father glorifies him. He's Yahweh. He's, he's the gate. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. He gives eternal life. He's one with the Father. He's the resurrection and the life. He is teacher and Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He's the true vine. He is the king. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really stupid I'm going to change foolish to stupid because it is stupid. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really stupid thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing you can't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Toss that around. Think about it, right? And we'll see you next week.